Good morning, everybody. This is the seminar on Islam. And in just a second, I'm going to introduce our guest speaker, Jay Smith. Just to give you an idea of what to expect, what we'll do is I'll introduce Jay now and he'll speak for a while and then he'll invite questions. When we invite questions, guys, you're very welcome to queue up in front of the microphones, which is over here to my left, and this red microphone over here to my right. And then at 12.30, we will invite Jay to come off the stage. Jay will stand here, down the front, and we will invite all of you who'd like to stay and hear some more question and answer. We'll invite all of you to shuffle up, and then uh, we'll continue for another half an hour or so. And then later on today, just so that you know, at 2 o'clock, Jay and his wife Judy are going to stay here on site. They'll be heading over to the Engage tent, and we'll be able to do some more question and answer with Jay Smith. Okay, guys, if you'd like to hush just for a second. Shh. If you'd like to bring your conversations to a close, thank you so much. You're so kind. Guys, it's a great privilege for us uh, now for the fourth time to invite Jay Smith to speak to us. Just so that you know, Jay Smith has been probably the most popular seminar speaker that we've ever had at New Day. And he and his wife Judy have been based here in London, based in Europe for many years, helping to reach Muslims here in London for Christ. It's a privilege for us to have someone who not only knows so much about Islam and how to reach Muslims, but somebody who can really help you if there is one person, maybe the only person in your class at school who believes in God, it just so happens they're a Muslim, what could you say to him or her? Or if there are two people in your class or in your year who believe in God, but they're both Muslims, what could you say to them? Jay's going to help us with that. So he's traveled up from London. It is a massive coup for us to have Jay Smith here at our event. So I hope that you'll help me in giving Jay Smith an absolutely enormous New Day welcome. Let's welcome Jay as he comes. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Terrific. Okay. I think this is my fourth year that I've been here at New Day, and every time I see different faces. Actually, I can't see any face. You're all dark because all the lights are on me. But the one thing that's great about coming here is that most of you, and I hope most of you, have relationships with Muslims. Raise of hands. How many people have talked to Muslims in the last week? Oh, a lot of hands went down. How many of you have friends who are Muslims? Now, I'm, it's hard for me to see how many hands are there, but I'm hoping at least a third of you have your hands up. I hope all of you get to know Muslims. The reason why, they are the easiest people to talk about Jesus. They are the easiest people I have found to talk about the Bible. And those are the two things we want to talk about, are they not? We want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about the Bible. Let me tell you something. Next time you meet a Muslim in your class or in your street or some of you are working where you work, maybe even in your family, the next time you go up to them, say two things. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Do you have an opinion? And they may have six hours of opinion. God bless them. I, one of the things I have found, they are, the, they are the ones that usually open up the discussion. Once they find out that you're a Christian, and please tell them that you are a Christian, 
Don't hide it. Don't run away from it. Don't apologize for it. Be very passionate about it because they need to see passionate Christians. They need to see people like you. And usually they will have a whole litany of questions, one after the other, and it may bowl you over. You won't, you won't be ready for the kind of questions they have. And the reason why is because they know quite a bit about Christianity already. If you were to say those two things to any other student, they would probably walk away from you, not wanting to talk about Jesus Christ. They will probably say something about Jesus Christ, which is not very pleasant under their breath as they're walking away, but not a Muslim, not a Muslim. And this is why I love working with Muslims, because they are the ones that want to engage about Jesus Christ. Now, I go down to Speaker's Corner every Sunday. I have been going down to Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park there in London since 1992. For 24 years, every Sunday when I'm in country, you will see me down there. I was just there last Sunday. I will be down there next Sunday. If you live in London and you're free on a Sunday afternoon, come on down and see what we do. I get up on a little ladder, just so my head's above the crowd, and we take on hundreds of Muslims at a time every Sunday. And what I tend to do, I have the Quran, this book here, in one hand, and I have the Bible, this book, in the other hand. Can you see which is the bigger book? Get it right. The Bible is the bigger book, the better book. I do that purposely. So they see which is the one that I consider to be the bigger, the better book. And we engage about these two books every Sunday. Last Sunday, we were there. We almost got thrown out of the park. We had such an unruly crowd. The Muslims got so angry at us because we started criticizing this book here, the Quran. I don't want you to do that. That's my job. I'm a polemicist. That means I go on the offense. And we're starting to destroy this book using historical criticism. Now, we're not going to unpack that today. There's not enough time. If any of you want to come and ask me in the tent afterwards about what we're finding out about this book, the Quran, you can do so. But what you can do, all of you, is you can defend Jesus Christ and you can defend the Bible. Because almost invariably, as soon as you say you're a Christian and you say that the Bible is the Word of God, the first question they're going to ask you is prove it. And they'll say that the Bible has been corrupted. Have you heard that question over again? The Bible has been corrupted. This book, they say, is not worthy to read because it has been changed, it's been accreted, it's been deleted, there's been all kinds of corruptions. There is no original Bible, they'll tell you. Therefore, don't trust it. How many of you have had that question before? Let me show you how you can answer that. If they say the Bible has been corrupted, ask them very quickly, when? Was it corrupted before the time of Muhammad? Before the writing of the Quran? Or after? After the 7th century. Now they'll say before, obviously. It's always been corrupted, they'll say. They'll say it from the very beginning. It was corrupted by those who wrote it because none of those who wrote it are prophets. Who is Matthew? Who is Mark? Who is Luke? Who is John? They are not prophets. Only Issa is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. So where is Jesus' revelation, they'll say. So scratch your head and say, hold on a minute, let's see what the Quran says. And ask them to open up the Quran. They won't have a Quran. Rarely do Muslims ever have Qurans. 
They usually have Bibles in their hands. When we're at Speaker's Corner, you'll see many Muslims with Bibles and little post-it notes all the way through with seeming contradictions, seeming historical anachronisms, all these questions confronting the Bible, but they won't have a Quran. In fact, we're the only ones that have Qurans down there, and the reason is very simple. How many of your Muslim friends have ever read the Quran? Very few of them. And the reason is because if you're going to read the Quran according to what Islam says, you've got to do it in Arabic. And the vast majority of Muslims around the world do not speak Arabic. 85% do not speak Arabic. It's about 95% in this country do not speak Arabic. If they will have read the Quran, they will have memorized it as little children, and they will have memorized it in Arabic in a language they don't even understand. It's almost as if we were to ask all of you to memorize the New Testament in Greek. What would be the purpose? Very, I don't think there's any, maybe there is somebody that speaks Greek here, but nobody speaks Koinonia Greek, first century Greek. There would be no reason to do so in, for the New Testament, which is the same size as the Quran. The reason they do it, the reason they memorize it is not to understand it, is not to unpack it, is not to study it. The reason they do it is to receive blessings. They call baraka. They believe that when they were born, everybody, including all of you, when you were born, you were given an angel that sits on this shoulder and another angel that sits on this shoulder. And this angel records your good deeds, records your baraka. Baraka, 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 baraka. Every good deed you do is recorded by this angel. Every bad deed you do is recorded by this angel. It's like a credit and debit account, like a banking account. Your good deeds on this shoulder, your bad deeds on this shoulder. And by reading the Quran, by memorizing the Quran, you're receiving baraka, 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 baraka. That's why they do it. Is that why we read the Bible? Do any of you get credit from God for reading the Bible? No. We read the Bible to understand it. We read the Bible to look and see what it says. And that's why this book, the Bible, has been translated into 2,500 languages so that 60% of the world's population can now read the Bible in their own mother tongue. Sorry, did I say 60? 93%. Almost the entire world now can read the Bible in their own native tongue so that they can read it and understand it. And that's why we have Bible studies. That's why you take the Bibles with you. That's why when you open it, you will read it and understand it. But if you read the Quran, you will find those of you who have even read a translation of the Quran, it doesn't make sense. See if you can find an entire story that's complete. There is only one story in the entire Quran that's complete. Stories don't begin, stories don't end. One story does not follow from another. It is what we call in India, ulta pulta, it's all over the place. And that's why even the Muslim scholars don't understand 20% of it. A fifth of the Quran, even the Muslim scholars don't understand. Can you then understand why they do not spend much time with this book? They don't know it. They don't read it. But what you can do is you can go back to it and ask them to go back to the Quran. They always have a Quran in their home. Go back and find if there's one verse, one verse in the Quran that says the Bible has been corrupted. I've been asking this for 33 years. And for 33 years, I have yet to find one verse. There are no verses in the Quran that talk about an earlier corruption. In fact, they say just the opposite. Surah 10, ayah 94, that means book 10, verse 94, and Surah 21, ayah 7, that means book 21, verse 7, says, 
if you have any question, Muslims, go to the people of the book, that's us, the Christians and Jews, and ask them because they have been given the Taurat and the Injil, the Torah and the Gospels. They're to come to us and ask us if they have any question. Why? Because we've been given the Torah, the books of Moses, and the Injil, the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would a Quran tell them to come back to a corrupted book? Surah 29, Ayah 27, I, uh, sorry, Ayah 26 says very clearly, do not argue with the Christians. Ooh, I love that one. I use that at Speaker's Corner every Sunday. Don't even argue with us because we have been given the Taurat, the Injil, for you. Surah 4, Ayah 136, all Muslims go to those scriptures that God has given you. Those scriptures, meaning the Torah and the Injil, God has given them our scriptures. Surah 5, Ayah 46 and 47 say, O Christians and Jews, go to those scriptures God has given us. So here you have, I've given you five references. Surah 10, Ayah 94, Surah 21, Ayah 7, Surah 29, Ayah 46, Surah 4, Ayah 136, and Surah 5, Ayah 46 and 47, which says over and over again, go to those books. Do not argue with them. O Muslims, these are the books God has given you. O Christians, these are the books God has given us. Where is there any reference in any of those Verses of a corruption. None. So that means that if the Bible is corrupted, it has to be corrupted after the time of Muhammad, after the time of the Quran, after the seventh century. If that's the case, bring them down to London, down to the British Library and show them the Sinaiticus. Aren't you privileged, you British people? You went all over the world, stole everything, and brought it to the British Museum and the British Library so that we can look at it. And that's why we have one of the greatest treasure troves in the world, right in London. We have a tour that we put together of the entire of the uh, British Museum. It takes about three hours to go through, where we have artifact after artifact, stella after mural after tablet, that supports the Old Testament. Names, dates, places, events. In, that support First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel. It's amazing what you've got in that museum. All stolen, but thank God you did steal it. Because had you not done so, it wouldn't have been preserved so we could look at it. And there in the British Library is the Sinaiticus. The Sinaiticus, the oldest complete New Testament anywhere in the world from the 4th century. That's 300 years before the Quran was even written. And it's the same book that we have today. Right next to it is the Alexandrinus, the Old and New Testament from the 5th century. That's 200 years before the coming of the Quran and Muhammad. And that's right in London. You go around the world and we have about 325 manuscripts of the New Testament, either complete or partial, from before the 6th century. Now, if you want to talk about manuscript evidence, we've got 5,000 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgates, another 9,000 in other languages. You add that up together, that's about 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone in 11 different languages. If we had wanted to corrupt it at any point, we'd have to go to every one of those 24,000 manuscripts in 11 different languages, corrupt it so it all was unified and it all agreed with each other and no one knew about it. So tell me, what's the bigger miracle? The fact that the Bible can be reproduced all over the world in 11 different languages, starting from the 4th century, 300 years before Islam even came onto the world stage. Please, don't say that we corrupted it after the 7th century. You can't say that anymore today. Not with the material we have. 
and not with the manuscript evidence. Now, once you get to the Quran, I'm sorry, once you get to the Bible and you've supported the Bible, then you've got to support Jesus Christ. And really, that's where the battle lies. There's not really anything else between Islam and Christianity that we really need to confront and defend. It really comes down to Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Listen, there's an awful lot of things you can talk about, but please don't, because you're just wasting your time. Please don't talk about Israel. Don't talk about what's happening geopolitically. Stick to the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's really where Islam and Christianity differ. It all comes down to who is God. Who is God? Now, first of all, before you can even get into Jesus, you're going to have to answer that question. Who is God? See, Muslims will tell you that we share the same God. How many people here believe that we in Christianity have the same God as Muslims have in Islam? Nobody's raising their hands? I can't see because you're, you're all dark. I can't see you. Are there any hands raised? One foot raised down here. Okay, I'll go with that foot. For those of you who believe we share the same God, let me help you. If we share the same God, and Muslims will say we do, I want you to go up to that Muslim and shake their hands. Shake their hands. And say this. I'm so glad you believe we share the same God. I'm so glad to know that Allah of the Quran came to earth, walked and talked in the cool of the day, was able to enter time and space and wrestle with Jacob. I'm so glad to finally hear you say that Allah of the Quran is triune is one yet three and I'm so glad to know that your God came to earth died on the cross and rose again on the third day and that you now believe that Allah is has a son can you see what I've just done by the time I get through those four things usually in every case the Muslim has pulled his hand out of my hand and says no no that's not what I said I said yes it is if you believe we share the same God then I'm going to define who that God is Let me define who my God is, not you. And I know that my God in the Bible came to earth any time he wanted. He was there walking and talking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. From the very beginning, God had entered time and space. From the very beginning, God was on earth. My God can enter any time he wants. My God can walk and talk with me. My God can have a relationship with me. Can your God? Is Allah of the Quran ever able to have a relationship with me? No. Was Allah even in the Garden of Eden? No. And you can see that by Surah 2, Surah 7, and Surah 20. Three different references, three different places you can find the story of the Garden of Eden. In fact, their Garden of Eden is up in space. It's not even on earth. And if it's up in space, then, and Allah's not even there, then what kind of God are they talking about? Not the God I know. My Garden of Eden in Genesis is on earth. God comes down my level. He comes down to where I am. He comes and walks and talks with me. He's there in the cool of the day. It looks like he did this every day. He had a relationship with Adam and Eve that I don't even see with Allah of the Quran. More than that, when I look at that God who's in the Quran, he's totally other, totally distant, has no relationship, incapable of entering time and space, is absolutely unknowable. Oh, he has 99 names. 99 names. Take a look at those 99 names, and you will find the three most popular names are Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, 
Al-Wadud. Al-Rahman, the compassionate one. Al-Rahim, the merciful one. Al-Wadud, the loving one. Ask your Muslim friends. Compassion, mercy, loving. These are the most popular names. These are the ones that are found. Rahman al-Rahim is found 25 times in the Quran. The most common name that is given to Allah in the Quran. These are his eternal names. If they are his eternal names, therefore they have always defined him. And these are the names that define him. And ask your Muslim friends this. Compassion, mercy, and love. By definition, you have to have an object to your compassion. You have to have an object to your mercy. You have to have an object to your love. Do you not? Otherwise, those words mean, no, mean nothing. They impose a plurality. How can you have a compassion, mercy, or love for a God who is one and has no other until Adam and Eve were created? Until Adam and Eve were created, there is no sense of compassion, mercy, or love. It, these words make no sense. Therefore, how could they be, be his name? Those words only make sense for the God of the Bible. The triune God of the Bible. Because when we look at the Trinity, we see God the Father has always loved God the Son. God the Son has always loved God the Holy Spirit. There has been community. There has been love, a plurality of love, eternally within the Godhead. And if we're made in his image, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, if we're made in his image, that means we are imbued with that same love. We are imbued with that same relationship. That's why I know I'm a social animal. That's why we can have relationship even on earth because it already exists in the triune Godhead. Islam can't say that. And no Muslim can help and can answer that. And in 33 years, I've yet to see a Muslim that can help me understand Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, Al-Wadud, a loving, compassionate, merciful God, unless you come back to the triune Trinity. That's why I love the Trinity. That's why I have to help the Muslims and help them not only define it, but show it how it works with the God of the Bible. Only the God of the Bible makes sense now. Because now I know why I'm loving, why I'm compassionate, why I'm merciful. Because it's always existed eternally in the Godhead, in whose image I'm created. But let's get back to this Allah. If Allah has never come to earth, is unknowable except for his 99 names, three of which, in fact, quite a few of them are imbued with personality and sociality and also plurality, then how do they know who Allah is? Ask them that. Who is this Allah that you're worshiping? Have you ever seen him? Have you ever talked to him? Does he ever listen to you? When you pray to him, does he ever respond to your prayers? See, we know God's right here, is he not? God's in this tent. God's right in our midst. Allah never comes to earth, is incapable of coming to earth. And if Allah is incapable to come to earth, I've got another question. I remember doing a debate in Russia. Uh, I was doing a debate there in Kazan, the third largest city in Russia. I was challenged by some Muslims who heard that I was in town. They challenged me to a debate. They asked me, and I said, I'd do the debate, but I didn't understand any Russian. So they gave me one translator. Actually, I went through three translators. They said, because I speak too fast. I don't think I do. But the first question that came out from the debater, from the person, the Muslim that was debating me, said, said, Mr. Smith, please don't say God came to earth. Allahu Akbar, God is the greater. God is omnipotent. Please don't limit God 
by saying he came to earth. God cannot become a man. God cannot corrupt himself like us. Don't ever say that in our midst. So I turned to my translator and I said, I want you to tell him right now, shame on you. Now, he wouldn't do that. He didn't want to say that. I said, no, say this. Shame on you. How dare you say, Allahu Akbar, God is the greater. God is omnipotent, but he can't become a man. Because you've just taken away his greatness. You've just taken away his omnipotence. If God is truly great, if God is truly omnipotent, he can come to earth anytime he wants. Please keep God great. My God can come to earth. Yes, he can. He can take on any form he wants. He can take on human form. For heaven's sakes, he made us. Can he not even participate with his own creation? If your God cannot come to earth, if he cannot take on human form, you've got too small a God. Get a bigger God. Come on home. His name is Jesus Christ. And I said to them, so the next question was, are you saying that God went to the toilet? Yeah, my God can go to the toilet. Can't yours? In fact, you can go to the toilet, which means you can do something greater than your God. Please stop limiting God. Of course he can go to the toilet. You mean God can eat? Well, if he went to the toilet, he better have eaten first. Yes, my God can eat. Now, why are they asking these questions? Because they're in the Quran. In Surah 5, Ayah 72, it says God cannot have a partner. In Surah 5, Ayah 75, that means book 5, verse 75, it says God cannot eat. Because Jesus ate and Mary ate, they cannot be gods because God does not dare to eat. And I went and I meant and I turned it right back to them and I said, listen, if you don't believe God can eat, why don't you go and ask Abraham, since he is your father, he's also the father of ours, go and ask Abraham who he was eating with there in front of the tent of Mamre, there in Genesis chapter 15. Who was that he was eating with? That was God he was eating with. Abraham ate with God then you do not have the God of Abraham. Ooh, I love it. Every question they ask, you can feed the gospel into. Just feed the gospel. Go back to Scripture. You're always on safe ground if you go back to Scripture. So then they turned to me and they said, okay, are you saying that God can die? God can die? They thought they had me on that one. And I said, you know, for the last 10 minutes, you've been telling me what God can and cannot do. You've been telling me that he can't come to earth because that would corrupt himself. You've been telling me that he cannot eat. You tell me he cannot go to the toilet. And now you're asking me, can God die? You have been spending the last 10 minutes trying to define God in your own terms, trying to tell me who God is and who he is not. Who are you to say whether God can or cannot do something? Why don't we ask God this question? Let's go back to the Bible and ask Jesus, Issa, whether he claimed that he could die and rise again. Die and rise again. Let's go back to John 10. So we went back to John 10 and opened it up, and there Jesus says, for the Son of Man, which is one of the most, the most common name that he gave himself, for the Son of Man can lay down his life and take it up again. Yes, my God can die, but don't leave him dead. He died on Friday, and that's the day they celebrate. Friday is the day they celebrate. Listen, Friday's here, but Sundays are coming. Don't leave him there on Friday like the Catholics do and keep him up on the cross all the time. Get him off the cross and let him rise again and destroy death. My God can die anytime he wants. But he also can raise himself. And by dying and rising again, he was saying, I am God. And that's why I love my Jesus. That's why I love my Jesus.
Don't ever ask, can God do this or not? Would you stop telling God what he can and cannot do? Would you listen to what he's saying? Don't ever say how. The bigger question is why. Why would he come and die and rise again? Ooh, then you got about an hour and you can just preach the gospel. And that's what we did there in Russian, in Kazan, using translator after translator because they could not keep up with the message. But what a message we have! See, everybody needs to have a God that's big enough. And we need a God that's bigger than ourselves. We need a God that's so big, so huge, that he can come my direction, enter time and space, walk and talk with me, be able, yes, to communicate with me, even eat with me, if it so be, pleases his will. And yes, die for me. My God dies for me. But he rises on Sundays. Friday's here, but Sundays are coming. Yes, my God rose from the dead. And from rising from the dead, he destroyed everything that man had done from the very beginning. Destroyed what Adam and Eve had done. And because of that, we are here to worship Jesus Christ. And that's why we sing about him. That's why we have Easter. And that's why we love him. Because he, yes, the greatest, the most omnipotent being in in the heavens and the earth, the one who created the heavens and the earth, he yet chose to come to earth and be a humble being like you and me. A child, a baby, the weakest of all beings. That's my God. And he did it for a reason. Not just to walk and talk with us, though he did. Not just to eat with us, though he did. To die for us. And then rise again and destroy everything that Satan had done. Chosen by man, imposed by Satan. Now let's come back and let's talk about this man, Jesus. Because this is where you really are going to have, this is where most of your discussions should run. You need to get to Jesus. Please, in every discussion you have with the Muslims, somehow bring Jesus into the discussion. Please bring him in. Because he's going to win every battle for you. See, I have, for 33 years, I've asked people, can you find anything wrong with Jesus? For 33 years, I've asked this of Muslims, I've asked this of atheists, I've asked this of humanists, I've asked this of everybody. Can anybody find anything wrong with Jesus? And in 33 years, I've not seen a person who can answer that question. Muslims usually say, we love Jesus. In fact, we love Jesus more than you do. And I said, how is that? I said, because we don't have him die. I said, well, then you don't love Jesus. Because you have no idea of why Jesus came. And the person of Jesus is a problem for Muslims. The reason why is because they've got the wrong name. They've got the wrong Jesus. When you look at the Quran, you will see that the Jesus in the Quran is named Issa. Now, I don't even know what that word means. It's not Arabic. That is not the name for Jesus in Arabic. The name for Jesus in Arabic is Yeshua, which is like Yeshua in Hebrew. Has always been Yeshua for 2,000 years. So where in the world did the Quran get this notion that he was called Issa? And I've yet to find a Muslim that can answer that question because they all know that Issa is not Arabic. So who is this Issa? Well, when you look at the Quran, you will see that he does things that I don't recognize. He's referred to about 93 times in the Quran, and most of the time he is Issa ibn Miriam. Issa ibn Miriam, that means the son of Mary, the son of Mary. That's to emphasize his humanity, because they don't want you to believe that he was anything more than a man. A prophet, a great prophet, but great only after Muhammad, second only to Muhammad. Nonetheless, he was always a man, like Muhammad was always a man. And yet this Issa doesn't make any sense. As a baby, as a child, in Surah 3, Ayah 46, he speaks from the cradle. I don't remember Jesus speaking from the cradle. Did he in your Bible? Not in my Bible, he didn't. Not yet there it is in chapter 3, verse 46. Three verses later, in chapter 3, verse 49, he takes some mud, 
he forms it into the shape of a bird, blows on it, and the bird flies up into the air. Did Jesus ever do that as a child? Not in my Bible, he didn't. But there it is in chapter 3, verse 49. So he does things as a child that I don't see in my Bible. These are the... These are the apocryphal writings. And what's fascinating, we pretty much know where those stories come from. They were borrowed from other sources. They were borrowed from other texts. When you look at the stories of Abraham and when you look at the story of Moses, when you look at the story of Cain and Abel, all these Old Testament characters that are in the Quran, there's 19 of them in the Quran, every one of the stories are different than the stories we have in the Bible. And the reason why we've done source criticism on them, and we pretty well know where they come from. In every case, they come from the Mishnah, the Talmud. These are the, these are the Jewish apocryphal writings. The story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Abel doesn't know what to do with the body. He looks and he sees a raven scratching in the ground to bury its partner. So he decides to follow the example of the raven. That's not in the Bible, but that is found in the Talmud of Jonathan ben Uzziah, which is an apocryphal Jewish writing written in the 2nd century A.D., after Christ, and incorporated into the Quran sometime in the 8th or 9th century. The story of Abraham in Surah 21, verses uh, 51 to 71. Great story, Abraham is in Mecca. I had no idea that Abraham lived in Mecca. But according to the Quran, there he was, way down in Mecca, 600 miles too far south. Nonetheless, we're not going to quibble about that right now. But there he is in Mecca, he gets up in the middle of the night, goes to the Kaaba, sees all the idols in the Kaaba, decides to take a big idol and destroy all the smaller idols. The next day, the people wake up, they see all the destroyed idols, they come to Abraham, they ask him, what have you done? He says, well, talk to the idols. Well, of course, they can't do that, so they throw them into a fiery pit. Is that in your Bible? I never got that story in Sunday school. Where did that story come from? It comes from the Mishnah of Rabbah, another second century Jewish apocryphal account, written long after the Bible was completed, was never considered to be authoritative, was written by the Jews as a bedtime story for their children. And yet there it is in the Quran in Surah 21, verses 51 to 71. These stories, there's story after story after story after story. When you get to Jesus, all of them deal with his childhood. And when you look at all these stories in Surah 19, he and his mother are out in the desert. They get hungry. So Jesus speaks to his mother, a baby speaking to the mother, telling her to shake a certain tree so that the fruit can come down, which she does. Jesus telling his mother how to eat. I don't remember that at all. Creating these birds out of mud, speaking from the cradle. These are all called sectarian writings, Christian sectarian writings. These were all written in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th century. And what's interesting They were all written in Syriac. Some of them are part of what we call the Nag Hammadi Gospels. None of these were considered to be authoritative. No church would have accepted any of these stories. Because they were not intended to be. They were written long after the Bible was completed. Yet they find their way into the Quran. And what's interesting, when you look at the beautiful hymns, you'll see beautiful poetry that's in the Quran. And Muslims say this poetry proves that it must come from God because Muhammad could not read or write. How could he write such beautiful poetry? There are two scholars. One was Dr. Luxemburg and the other was Dr. Gerd Puin. They, I'm not Gerd Puin, sorry, Dr. Gunther Luning. And uh, Gunther Luning and Luxemburg, independently of each other, looked at these poems and they were able to trace them back to pre-Islamic Christian hymns written in Syriac in the 5th and 6th century as hymns for churches, yet they find their way into the Quran today. So if you're going to say these are great 
poetry and that God must be credited with this. Muhammad must be cre- could not be because he could not read or write. Give credit to who wrote it. Muhammad had nothing to do with those hymns. Those were Christian hymns written in the 5th and 6th century in Syriac. But here's the interesting thing. Look at the name for Jesus in Syriac. It's Iesu. When you take Iesu and you bring it into Arabic, it becomes Issa. Iesu. Issa. Bingo. Now we know where Issa comes from. He's the Syriac Jesus. He is the heretical Jesus. This is not the Jesus we know because the Syriac writings were all Gnostic writings. These are sectarian writings written by heretics who were never accepted by the church and it is these writings that find their way into the Quran. So why didn't they go back to the original documents? Why didn't the writers of the Quran go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ? For one simple reason. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament were not translated into Arabic until the late 8th century. Therefore, they did not have access to the Bible in Arabic. They only had access to all these stories that came down through the traders, the camel herders, who brought them with them orally. And that's why they've got the name Issa, the wrong Jesus. Now, I like to go up to Muslims, and you can do this as well, and just say, why don't we look at the Quran? Nonetheless, even though the Quran has all these stories that I don't believe, let's take a look and compare Muhammad with Issa. Muhammad with Issa. Because Muhammad is the man they go to. Issa is the man we go to. Though it's not the Jesus we serve, nor it's the Jesus that I see in the Bible. Nonetheless, start with the Quran and just do a comparative. I was in Detroit, and I was at a fair there, a big Arabic fair, and there was a guy holding a sign, Jesus and Muhammad. We love them both. So I went up to him and I said, you know, I want to talk to you about that. I said, I'm so glad you have Jesus above Muhammad because Jesus is greater than Muhammad. He said, no, 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 no. We love them both. I said, no, but it's good you have Jesus on the top because he really is much greater than Muhammad. And I'm going to go to your Quran to prove it. By that time, a crowd started to form. I love when crowds form because then you know you've got an audience. And I said, I'm going to start with your Quran. I'm just going to use four verses to show you how Jesus is superior to Muhammad starting with the Quran. Starting with Surah 19, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 20, it says that Jesus is born of a virgin. Now, in my world, virgins don't conceive. Not in my world, they don't. If a woman conceives a child, she's no longer a virgin. So something is going on here when a virgin conceives. And I asked my Muslim friend, why is this important? Well, they say, oh, it's because it's in Scripture. I said, no, 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 no. You've got to have a reason why a virgin will conceive. Where's the answer? They said, well, we don't know the answer. I said, what are you supposed to do when you don't have a question? Surah 10, ayah 94. Surah 21, ayah 7. If you have any question, go to the people of the book. Come to us. And we'll tell you why it's important that a virgin conceives. And we'll take you back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I'm making it really easy for you all because 7 is the perfect number. Double that is verse 14. Okay, double that is 14. So Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah says this. This shall be a sign. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Wake up, people. When a virgin conceives, you better wake up. Something special is happening. That's the sign. But then Isaiah goes on and defines who this son is. He will be a son. That means it's going to be a boy. And he shall be called Emmanuel. God with us. So when a virgin conceives and bears us a son, he is God with us. Ooh, I love that. Proving that Emmanuel, Jesus, is God on earth with us. 
That's why you have to have a virgin birth. And it's right there in your Quran, Surah 19, Ayah 20. Then you go to Surah 3, Ayah 46 that I mentioned earlier, which Jesus could speak from the cradle. Could Muhammad speak from the cradle? No, he could not. Surah 3, Ayah 49, Jesus takes some birds, makes them into clay, blows on them, they fly up in the air, making something out of nothing. Could Muhammad do any miracle? Muhammad never did a miracle. Three times he's asked to perform a miracle. In every case, he says, why should I do a miracle? The prophets before did miracles. You killed them. I'm nothing more than a messenger. That's the only defense he had. Why could Muhammad, if he was the greatest of all the prophets, if he was in the whole line of the prophets, why could he not even do one miracle? In the same verse, it says that Jesus gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. And he resuscitated the dead. Could Muhammad give sight to nobody? Never. He never gave sight to anybody. Did he hail the lame? No, he usually made them lame. Did he resist a Ted? No, he usually killed them. Just the opposite. And in every case, when you look at Jesus and Muhammad, just in the Quran, you will see Jesus comes out on top. Now, we started with Surah 19, Ayah 20. We're going to end with Surah 19, Ayah 19. We're going to go back to first chapter 19. Because in verse 19, it's an amazing verse. Because there is angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying to Mary, I'm going to give you a son, a righteous son. A righteous son. Righteous means sinless, uncorrupted. And I asked my Muslim friends, all right? So Jesus is the uncorrupted one, the sinless one, the perfect one, the holy one. What about Muhammad? Is Muhammad complete, perfect, sinless? They say, yes, all prophets are sinless. I said, no, they're not. Every prophet in your Quran sins. We've got a whole list of all the sins of the prophet up on our website. I said, especially Muhammad, three times he has to ask forgiveness for sin. If you have any doubt, open up chapter 48, verse 1 and 2. Surah 48, verse ayah 1 and 2. There it is. O Muhammad, you were to ask forgiveness for the sins you have done and the sins you are yet to do. Even as a prophet, he continues to sin and has to ask forgiveness for it, but not Jesus. Surah 19, ayah 19, said that Jesus never sinned. And if Jesus never sinned, who in the world never sins but God himself? The fact that he never sinned, here's another reference to Jesus' divinity. Over and over again, we keep on coming back to the same thing. Over and over again, you will find that every question a Muslim asks you, you can feed the gospel into. Whether they talk about Allah, make sure you don't say we share the same God because we don't. My God is too big for the Quranic God. My God is much too big for Allah of the Quran. My God can do things Allah can't even begin to do. My God can have a relationship with me, which Allah cannot have. My God can enter time and space and has all the way through history. It started at the Garden of Eden and all the way through, you will see over and over again, God coming to earth. That was God that was wrestling with Jacob. You have to have arms and legs if you're going to wrestle. That was God that was eating with Abraham. You have to have a mouth and a stomach if you're eating with Abraham. There, in the, as the children of Israel were going through the desert, who was leading them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night? That was God. See, my God can enter time and space. My God can come my direction. And my God can speak my language. The God of Islam is incapable of coming to earth. Never comes my direction. Never speaks my language. And in fact, even his revelation, you can only read it in Arabic. This one here is not a translation. It says the interpretation of the meaning of the Noble Quran. They, you cannot even translate this book, they say. 
because Arabic is so holy. My God can talk to me in any language. That's why we have the Bible in 2,500 languages. Ooh, what a God we have. He can come my direction, speak my language. And the great thing about him, I can talk to him at any time I want. Not just five times a day, all day long if I want to. And not just in one direction towards Mecca, I can talk to him in any direction. And yes, even in the toilet, I can talk to my God. What a God we've got. Can you see in almost every category, we've got a God that's bigger and better than everything they've got. Let's look at our Bible versus the Quran. The Bible, listen folks, we haven't even begun to unpack what we now know about the Bible. But what we're finding about the Quran, if you want to ask, we have now been able to trace this book all the way back to its origins. And guess what? There is no original Quran. We can't find any manuscript for this book from the 7th century, the same century that Muhammad lived. We can't find anything written down in the same century he lived. And the ones that do get written down from the 8th century, that's the Topkapi in Istanbul, the Samarkand in Tashkent, the Husseini in, uh, um, in Cairo, the Petropolis there in Paris, the Ma'il manuscript, which is in London, and the Sana manuscript, which is in Yemen. Those six manuscripts, the earliest six manuscripts, not one of them is from the 7th century. They only begin to appear in the 8th century, 60 to 100 to 200 years after Muhammad was dead. Every one of them is, is different from each other, and not one of those manuscripts equals the Quran we have today. This is not a book from God. Last Sunday, we got up on the ladder at Speaker's Corner, and we just held up 14 different Arabic Qurans. Not one, not two, 14. We have 26 Arabic Qurans in our possession. We just held up 14. And in every case, they disagreed with each other. None of them were exactly alike. And the crowd that was there had never heard that before. We finally had to leave Speaker's Corner because we got so many death threats last Sunday. And we're on film. We've got it all filmed down where a man says, we're going to stab you. We're going to stab you for what you're saying. Folks, I've been doing this for 24 years and I've yet to be killed. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here, would I? So, folks, we are destroying this book. And we're also confronting Muhammad. That is not for you to do. Let us do that. We're the polemicists. All you need to do is defend Jesus Christ. Defend who he is. Defend the fact that every one of you and every Muslim you meet can have a personal relationship with Jesus. They can know him face to face. They can talk to him and he will respond. And most importantly, because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, every Muslim can be walking and talking in the cool of the day, with God himself on the other side of death. Ooh, I love it. They can have eternal life with Jesus. What better message is there but that? What more important thing to talk about but him? And I hope every one of you, when you leave today, you take that message with you, that Jesus is God, and the Bible is the word of God. Now, we have 50 minutes left, so we have two microphones, the yellow one and the orange one. Jump up, come to the microphones, and ask your questions. I can't say I will be able to answer them, but I will try to answer them. If I can't answer them, go and ask my wife. She's sitting right over there. She can answer everything I can't answer. So let's get a, a group of people, and we will try to do this very quickly. At 12.30, we do have to put, stop the, the session here. I will come down onto the floor, and then the rest of you who want to ask me verbally, because we won't be able to use the microphone, we will then continue from 12.30 on. So, sir, starting with you over here. 
How do you respond to Muslims who cl claim that the Quran is mathematically organized and so therefore must be divinely inspired? Okay, I love this question. How do you explain that it's mathematically organized? And the number they use is the number 19, right? Always the number 19. I just did a debate. If you want to go up on Fander Films, that's P-F-A-N-D-E-R-F-I-L-M-S. So it's Fander starting with a P. Go up on YouTube and look at our films, Fander Films. I did a debate with a Muslim scholar about three weeks ago at Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he is one of these. He's written his own Quran. I'm sorry, he's translated his own Quran. And if you go to Surah 9, the last Surah, you will see that, the, I'm sorry, the first Surah that was written, Surah 9, go to the end of Surah 9, you will see that he's taken out two verses. And the reason he's taken out those two verses is in order for him to get to the number 19. The reason why? He has to find the number 19. In Surah 74, it does talk about the number 19, but it doesn't define it. What they have done, in order to get the number 19, they have to manipulate the text. When I was doing a debate in 2014 with Dr. Shabir Ali in Toronto, considered to be the Muslim world's best debater, he asked this question as well. If you look at these set of verses with these set of verses, you will get 19. If you look at these set of verses with these set of verses, you get the number 19. If you look at these words with these words, you get 19, 19, 19, 19. He had 35 minutes to respond to my manuscript evidence. He didn't respond to one of my material. He spent 19 minutes of the 35. I kid you not, 19 minutes. I, I timed him later trying to persuade us that the Quran by itself has the miracle of the 19. I got up there and I asked him one simple question. Take a look at all these manuscripts we've just shown you. The Topkapi, the Samarkand, the Ma'il, the Petropolis, the Sana manuscript, the Husseini manuscript. Every one of these earliest six manuscripts have no verses. There are no verses on any of them. Verses were not introduced until the 8th and 9th century. So what verses are they talking about? He wouldn't answer at first. We've asked him. Where are you getting this number 19 from? Not in any of these manuscripts. Guess which manuscript he had to go to. The Al-Hazar canonized text written in 1924. That's less than 100 years ago. I turned to him and said, 1924? Your Quran is only 100 years old, not even 100 years old? Prince Philip is older than your Quran. And that, he sat down. He realized that he was shook at that time. He could not respond to that. So when they ask you this, just say, where is this number 19 in any of the original texts? And more than that, we have a paper we can send to you. Even the mathematics they've done wrong. Because they don't even, there is no standardization of words. Even the 26 Qurans that we have today, every one of them is different. So where are they getting this 19? They have to throw out verses, completely excise verses, to find 19. It's just not there. Thank God I don't have to defend the Bible like that. Thank God we don't need any numbers to defend the Bible. It's God's word because what's written in it and the fact that it level and it comes to everything I know. Okay, this lady over here. Um, with what you have told um, Muslims, have they turned from Muslim to Christian? Oh, I love that question. Yes, they have. In London alone, we have brought 125 Muslims to the Lord in just the last year, just using this material. I was in India, and in India, they're really coming to the Lord in hundreds because of this new material. And the reason why, we have always been told that whenever you meet a Muslim, just make friends. Never confront Islam. Have you heard that? Don't confront the Quran. 
don't confront Muhammad. Well, whose agenda do you think that is? Sounds like the Muslims are ones saying that. Because in many Muslim countries, you cannot do those two things. Listen, if you come and see me next Sunday at Speaker's Corner, I'm going to be confronting the Quran head on, right at the very beginning. If you look at any of my videos, I confront the Quran. I'm not asking you to confront the Quran, okay? Don't you confront the Quran. Let us do it. All you need to do is defend the Bible in Jesus Christ. But what we're finding, we have a girl on our team, and she goes into mosque after mosque after mosque after mosque all over the London area. They throw her out. She says, I'm coming back the next week. So she goes in again. They throw her out. She goes back again. She goes four times before they finally allow her to remain. And what does she do? She just picks up the Quran and reads it and shows all the problems with the Quran. And she's the one that's brought most of these to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you confront the Quran, you destroy what they believe. When you confront Muhammad, they destroy, you destroy who they follow. And we're the only ones that have an antidote. We're the only ones that have a bigger, a better book, and a bigger and a better man. So if you're going to confront the Quran, make sure you introduce the Bible. If you're going to confront Muhammad, make sure you introduce Jesus, because he's the only antidote. That's why, yes, we're bringing hundreds to the Lord. When I was in India last year, they had a debate using our material back in 2013 in January. In one debate, just on one day, confronting the Bible and the Quran, they brought 300 Muslims to the Lord, just from one debate. And that's why I love our material. <laughs> Sir. Um, I, was just, I was just wondering some, if, you, if you could recommend some practical ways that we can reach out to Muslims. I mean, um, I, I, mean I, can, I, I can understand some sort of Christian unions maybe uh, in, in universities and schools, but um, if there's no Muslims in our work environment, what would you recommend as, as practical ways to reach out to Muslims? You know, do they have like okay, very good question. you can go to? Or? Yeah, the best place I know to go to is where the Muslims are. Find out where the Muslims are in your community. I don't know where you are, sir, but if you come to London, we have a million of them. One million Muslims, a tenth of our population is now Islamic. In the summertime, it doubles to two million because we have so many tourists. If you're living in the London area, come down to Speaker's Corner on a Sunday and we'll show you hundreds and thousands of Muslims. You have them all around you. God bless them. And they're the best people because you can, don't have to dangle a carrot in front of their face. Just talk about Jesus and you'll get a big crowd. They're the only people I know, as soon as you open your mouth about Jesus Christ, they want to talk. And they will usually invite you to tea or coffee, and they'll pay for it. Now, where else do you get that kind of scenario but with Muslims? Find out where the Muslims are in your community. Listen, they're all over Britain. In every community, they should be there. Especially you. Now, this is why it's so good that I'm talking to youth. Because you're the ones that are on the front lines. You're the ones that have Muslims in your schools. You have in the unis. If you're on a school campus or you're in a uni, what you need to do is look at the bulletin boards and look and see when the Muslim meetings are on. You can go to any of the Muslim meetings. They're usually called ISOCs, Islamic societies. Invite yourself to them. You may be the only non-Muslim in the group. Don't worry. I used to do this back in 1992. I went to all the ISOCs. They're Imperial College, to USC. I went to SOAS. I went to King's College. I went to, I went to LSC. I went to all the ISOCs I could, and I would be the only non-Muslim in the group, and I would listen to the Muslim speaker, then I would raise my hand and ask questions at the question and answer period. And I, all the Muslims just sucked themselves to me, and I immediately got relationships with them. And we'd always go out to have coffee. I had so much coffee, I thought I was going to burst. They paid for it. I never paid for a cent. And we had discussion after discussion after discussion. And you can do the same thing. Just go to their meetings. Invite yourself in. 
Listen to the speakers. Most time, they rarely ever talk about Islam. They will be spending much of the time confronting Christianity. So raise your hand and say, hold on a minute. Jesus never said that. Can you source what you said? Let me hear. I've got a Bible right here. Can you show me in the Bible where Jesus did that? Be there to, de- to defend Jesus Christ. Now, you will find that they will ask questions that you've never heard before. So my favorite phrase is, give me a week. That means you have one week to go home, find the answer, come to us, go up on our website on fander.uk, and go and get the answer. That means you're going to come back the next week, you're going to have the answer, and more than that, you're going to start building up your apologetics. And I can't think of a better people to build up your apologetics, how to defend the faith, than with Muslims. Because they are all... Every Muslim I know that I've talked to are all asking about Jesus Christ and the Bible. So, find your Muslim. Get engaged with them. Tell them that you believe Jesus is God. Do they have an opinion? And they're going to have lots of opinion. Yeah. Um, How do you um, speak to people, uh, specifically women, who do wear the hijab and um, explain to them how that they don't have to wear it and that Jesus doesn't want them to wear and things like that and why is it that they also have to wear a hijab is it because that it apparently is for their husbands okay um, very good question and you being a woman can ask this question better than i can ask the question i don't usually do that the, be- the best people on our team are women we have three women that are absolutely amazing and they ask this question all the time and you can go right up to any woman and ask the very question you just asked me why do you have to wear a hijab? They'll say they don't have to. Yes, they do. In Surah 33, Ayah 59, chapter 33, verse 59, it's very clear, every woman must cover themselves up, their whole body, even their face. So it's not just the hijab, they're supposed to be completely covered. So that's from the Quran itself, and they do not go against the Quran. So that's why they have to do it. The Quran tells them they have to do it, and the reason is so they do not seduce men. Now, let me ask you, Who's got the problem here? Who's being seduced? The men are being seduced. So who do you got the problem, the men or the woman? The men do, right? So why are the women paying the penalty for the man's weakness? Why must the woman be covered up? See, Jesus was very clear. If a man has a problem, pluck out your own eye, not the woman's eye. You pluck out your own eye, men. Just bring him to Jesus Christ and help them understand that's not only a contradiction, but it's a denigration of women. If a man has a problem with my face, that's his problem, not my problem. And I love my face. Just tell them that. And I love your face too. Okay? Um, so would you say Muhammad was delusional, evil, or did he just seriously misinterpret something? Like, how would you explain all the visions that he said he had? All the visions? Yeah. Was Muhammad a loony, or...? No, so was he delusional, was he evil, or did he just really misinterpret something that he saw from God? Okay. Like, how do you explain the visions that he saw, that he claimed Please he don't say that to a Muslim. I wouldn't. I was asking you. Okay. <laughs> just to warn out, okay? But yes, you can ask me all that all, anytime you want. Was he delusional? I don't think Muhammad had anything to do with the Quran. In fact, 
I know very little about Muhammad. In fact, what little I know in the things you're going to talk about, all the stories, don't even appear until the ninth century. That's 200 years after his death, which suggests to me that whoever Muhammad was, he's not the Muhammad of history. He's nothing more than the Muhammad of faith. Now, I have no time to unpack that. However, from what they know about Muhammad, there's an awful lot of problems. That's why when you compare Jesus to Muhammad, Muhammad killed anybody that stood in his way. He destroyed, he assassinated anybody that criticized him. Um, Asma bin Marwan, who criticized him with poetic verse, he had her killed that night uh, while she was suckling her baby and, and praised the man who killed her. He, had, he took all the Jews out. All of the Banakuraiza family in 627 slit their throats, 800 men in one afternoon. Is this a model for today? Is this a prophet for you and me? Is this anything like Jesus Christ? So when you compare Muhammad to Jesus, there's no comparison. But don't you do that. Let us do that. All you need to say is, listen, I've got everything I need in Jesus Christ. He supplies all my needs. Muhammad, I'll let you have Muhammad. You try to follow Muhammad, and no wonder we're having the violence we have today. Because the violence that you see in the world today is exactly what Muhammad did. Thank God he's not my model. Thank God I don't have to go to him. Okay, we're going to have one last question. It is 1230. This will be the last question. And then we'll let people go who want to go. And I'll come down to the front and we'll continue from there. Your question. Um, my Muslim friend once said that the proof of the Quran was that Muhammad, Muhammad wrote it even though he couldn't read or write. Like, what would you say to that? Very brilliant question. The Muslims say that the reason that he had to be, that he was a prophet, because he did, never did any miracles, the one miracle he did was write this book. I, I thought you said he couldn't read or write. So how could he have written this book? Bingo, you've got a problem. Can you see it? Right there, you've just contradicted yourself. So therefore, who wrote this book down? Not Muhammad. He couldn't read or write. This book, according to all the Islamic traditions, was not even written during his lifetime. So how can you give credit to him? So who wrote the Quran? Who actually wrote it down? Ask your Muslim friends this. No one has an answer. We know who wrote it. The man's name is Zaidi bin Tabit. But he wasn't a prophet. He was a secretary of Muhammad. And he wrote it 20 years after Muhammad died. But he's not the only one that wrote it. There's another Quran written by Ubay ibn Kab from Damascus. There's another Quran by Ibn Masud from Baghdad. There's another Quran by Ibn Musa from Basra. I've just given you four Qurans by four different authors. They don't agree with each other. And according to all the Islamic traditions, there's 15,000 differences between those four Qurans. So where is this original Quran written by Muhammad? Bingo. I love it. Now how long did it take me to do that? That's why much of the material that you're hearing from your Muslim friends, they have never done any research. They cannot support what they're saying. Now, we don't have a problem with our Bible because we know who wrote which book. We even give the name of the authors. Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote Mark. Luke wrote Luke. John wrote John. We don't try to hide it. That's the beauty about my Bible. And that's why it's so easy to defend the Bible. I'm so glad I've got this book to defend and not this book. Come back to the bigger, the better book. God bless you.